Well, friends, please return with me to Mark chapter 10, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And as you do that, to get a running start on what we're going to study this morning, I'll, I'll rehearse verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. They, that is the disciples of Jesus, the twelve and an entourage of, of other disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Jesus is making his final trip to Jerusalem. He has but about a week left in his mortal life before he is crucified. And yet it's interesting, we're only in chapter 10 of Mark. We have six more chapters to go, and Jesus has only a week left in his life. Why is that? It points us to the fact that the Gospels are not typical biographies. You read a typical biography, and it tracks the life of a man or woman through every stage of their life from birth onward. The Gospels are not like that. The Gospels rather focus on the three years of Jesus' ministry and give a special focus to the sufferings and death and resurrection of Jesus at the end of his life. Why is that? Because that's why he came. Are you aware that it can only be said of Jesus that he came to die? That cannot be said of any of us. Now, we were born and we will die unless Jesus comes first, but that's not what can be said of you, that you were born for the purpose of dying but it can be said of Jesus. He was born for the express purpose of dying, and by his death, he would purchase eternal salvation for all he came to save, and that's why such focused attention is given to the events surrounding the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus in every gospel. Now, it is as Jesus, along with the Twelve, and as I said, a, a bigger entourage of disciples, have begun this trek to Jerusalem. It is during this time that he makes known to them for the third time an announcement about his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. That's what we have in verses 33 and 34, which we saw last week. As they're going up to Jerusalem, he said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. But as we saw last week, despite the crystal clarity of Jesus' words, and this is the third time he is spelling this out to them, the disciples don't get it. They are not yet equipped to understand Jesus' words. They don't understand the nature of his kingdom. Luke's parallel version tells us that after Jesus gives this announcement for the third time, we read this in Luke 18.34, and they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, what follows in our text for this morning is going to confirm that the disciples, even the twelve, have no clue about what is coming down, despite Jesus' clear announcement of it. It shows that their idea of the kingdom that is coming is pulls apart from the kingdom that Jesus has really come to bring. We're going to cover verses 10, uh, chapter 10, 35 to 45, and listen for a minute, and it takes about a minute for me to read that text. 
James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As you can tell, the theme of this passage is the request made by James and John. If you want to know how I construct my sermons, it's fairly simple. I look at any passage and I find what is the theme of the passage, and then I direct all the points of the message around that theme. What is the theme, and what does this passage say about the theme? And the theme of this passage is clearly the request of James and John. So all my points will refer to that request. Now let's begin with what I'm calling the presumptuous request of James and John. They start out by saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? And he says, grant that we may sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your glory. At first, they make a request of Jesus that's rather vague and veiled. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Can you imagine that? It's like saying to somebody, hey, I want you to uh, write me out a blank check and endorse it, and, and I'll fill in the amount. Yeah, but obviously, Jesus doesn't, doesn't go for that. He wants something more specific. And right there, I want to stop and, and make an application because I think there's a practical lesson there. Jesus is not about to commit to something he doesn't know what he's committing to. We want you to do whatever we ask. Can you imagine Jesus saying, sure, yeah, whatever you want. You know, he's not a genie in a lamp. You know, my wish is your command. No, Jesus is not a genie. And there's a practical lesson here, and it is simply this. Don't commit to anything before you know what you are committing to. Somebody may come to you, as I've had it happen to me, I think you've probably had it happen to you, where someone says, I want to share with you something, but you have to promise not to tell anybody. Now, what do you do? I respond in this way. I will say, I really want to guard your confidence, but I can't make that promise because it may become necessary to tell somebody else in your best interest. Now, I can promise you this that I won't share it with anyone else unless it is in your best interest, and I will also tell you first. And then I leave it with them. Do you, do you still want to share it with me? But I'm not going to make a blanket promise. Oh, no, I'm, going to, I'm sworn to secrecy. That's not wise, because it may be in their best interest that I may need to tell somebody else. So don't commit to something you don't know what you're committing to. Ah, you get a phone call, and somebody has a wonderful deal for you. 
right? Wonderful deal. You'll save a lot of money, but you have to commit now right on the phone. You got to give your credit card right now. Otherwise the deal will be lost. Well, can I think about it? Can you send me an email? No, no, it's right now. My stock answer is, I'm sorry. My wife and I always think things through and pray about a purchase we make. We don't make impulsive purchases. I guess I'm going to have to miss the deal. So simple, practical lesson. Don't commit to something you don't know what you're committing to. So Jesus doesn't bite. He doesn't agree to, to just do whatever they want, but he asks for more specifics. And they give the specific. Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Now, Jesus had spoken of upcoming glory and power. If you look back on chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, there is glory coming. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's a coming kingdom, and it's going to come with glory, and it's going to come with power. And now they want to sit on the right hand and on the left when that kingdom comes. Now, that was the request. Now, apart from the nature of the request, consider just for a moment, as a side note, the people making the request. Here it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, the brothers come with the request. Now, sometimes we get confused when different gospels give a different account. And Matthew tells us, if we can turn there, but in Matthew 20, 20 to 21, it's the mother of James and John, you may remember, Salome, who comes and makes that request. Well, is there a contradiction there? No, not really. Because in Matthew, when Jesus responds, he responds to more than one person. He responds with a you, which is a second person plural. So the idea is this, who came to Jesus making the request? Matthew's version says it was Salome, the mother of James and John. Mark says it was James and John. Is there any contradiction? No. Apparently, they all came in concert. They were in collusion together. So you don't have this ambitious mother and this non-ambitious retiring son. Oh, mom, 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 don't do that. They were ambitious as well. And so they all make the request, even though Mark focuses on James and John. Now, considering this request, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your glory. Are there any commendable aspects of the request? Is there anything good that we can glean from that request? It's a rhetorical question. I'm wondering if you're nodding, but nobody's nodding. Nobody's committing. I think there are a couple of good things. First of all, I think we can say that they had faith in Jesus' words. Jesus said there's a kingdom coming, and it's coming with glory and power. Now, there was no sign of that glory and power on the horizon, was there? The enemies of Jesus, the Jewish leaders, were plotting and scheming his death. The whole religious establishment was against him. As for the multitudes, they would be glad to throng around him and, and hear him and, and be touched by his miraculous power, but, but they weren't really following his message. There was no sign on the horizon of glory and power coming. And yet Jesus said, I'm coming into my glory and power. Isn't there something to be said for the fact that they believed Jesus? Now, they didn't understand what the kingdom was, 
But the fact that Jesus said there's glory coming, there's power coming, they believed him. Something to be said for their faith in Jesus' words. I think there's something to be said for their devotion to Jesus' person as well. Essentially, they're saying, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be on your right hand and on your left. We want to be close to you, Jesus. Is there anything wrong with that? Wherever Jesus is going, we want to be near you, Jesus. That's a praiseworthy thing. Is it praiseworthy of a mother to say, I want my boys to be close to Jesus? Isn't that the desire of every parent's heart here? You don't care how much money they make. You don't care how much fame they attain in this world. You want for your sons and daughters that they would be close to Jesus. And so on behalf of the mother and the sons, there was a, a devotion to Jesus that this bespeaks. They wanted to be close to Jesus, even closer than the others. But as, as there might be some commendable things, there is certainly more to condemn in their request than there is to commend. We don't know what fueled this request. Uh, it was true that James and John were part of the inner three chosen by Jesus along with Peter. They did some special things together. The mother of Jesus appeared to have served Jesus in various ways. Maybe there was a sense of entitlement. But I want to note several things that are condemnable about their request. First of all, it conveyed a proud presumption. Jesus, we want you to do for, for us whatever we ask. Lord, we want to be on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom. What is that? Who do they think they are? Isn't there some, some proud presumption there? Weren't they thinking of themselves more highly than they ought? We want to be closest to you, Jesus. So the question bespeaks some proud pres presumption. I think it reveals a, a crass selfishness as well. If they're going to be in the positions of special honor, what about the other 10? What about their buddies? I think so much care about them is we want to be in the positions of special honor. They were not regarding others as more important than themselves, right, which Philippians 2 says. So there was a proud presumption. There's a crass selfishness. There's certainly a gross ignorance, as we say many times. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. They had a misguided view of the kingdom. They had the view of the kingdom that it was earthly, that it was physical, that it was political, that it was territorial. And because they had a wrong view of the kingdom, they had a wrong view of the glory that would come with that kingdom. They obviously thought it was going to be a, a political kingdom. Jesus would rule over the Romans. and They would wield the scepter of authority with him. They would rule. They would judge. They were in positions of power. They did not understand that the most eminent subjects of his kingdom, as we'll see a little bit later, are the best servers and will be some of the worst sufferers. And so there's a gross ignorance. They didn't know what they were asking, as Jesus tells them. And finally, there's, there's something of an irreverent disrespect or, for Jesus. They were expecting Jesus to play favorites. Now, when you see that going on, we call it in the political world cronyism, right? We see that as the practice of unprincipled men. They're put in positions of power and privilege. Why? Because, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You supported me in my campaign. Nothing to do with their integrity, their competence, but simply because you did me some favors, so I'm going to put you in positions. And, and 
they're playing up to Jesus as though he was inclined to play favorites. And that shows something of a disrespect. They're treating him as some unprincipled politician. And politicians do that all the time. So, in their ambition, they are proud, they are selfish, they are ignorant, they are irreverent. But consider next what I'm calling the patient yet probing reply of Jesus to the request. First of all, do for us whatever we ask. What is it you want? Well, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your glory. And verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking, etc. First, note the patient rebuke that Jesus gives. You do not know what you are asking. Now, that offense or that question stood to be very offensive to Jesus. He is setting his face on a, like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And he knows what's coming down. He knows he's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be, have his back ripped open to near death. And then he's going to be impaled on wood. He knows that's happening. He's told them three times. And that is preoccupying his mind as there's, there's this demeanor about Jesus that's downright fearful as, as he's stepping on ahead, leading the entourage. He has all that on his mind. It stood to be very offensive to Jesus that while he's got all that on his mind, he's got these two near and dear ones who are drunk with the sparkling wine of these romantic hopes of glory and their own exaltation. How contrary was their spirit of self-exaltation to the, to the spirit of Jesus, one of self-denial and self-humiliation. He could have been very offended, but what I call your attention to is a rebuke that is very gentle and very mild. Listen to some commentators. Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim says, with unspeakable patience and tenderness, he whose soul is filled with the, trem- with the terrible contest before him bears with the weakness and selfishness which could cherish such thoughts and ambitions even at such a time. Richard Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, cites Martin Luther as saying that Jesus treated the presumptuous pride of the Pharisees with severity, but the ambition of these disciples with gentleness, for it springs from faith and needs only to be purified. Another commentator, A.B. Bruce, says the reply of Jesus to this ambitious request, considering its character, was singularly mild. Offensive though the presumption, forwardness, selfishness, and vanity of the two disciples must have been to this meek, holy, self-forgetful spirit, he uttered not a word of direct rebuke, but dealt with them as a father might deal with a child that had made a senseless request. Bruce goes on to say that Jesus calls attention to their least culpable offense. He doesn't call them out for their pride, for their presumption, for their selfishness, for their irreverence but he he calls them out for their ignorance. He simply says, you don't know what you're asking. And here, let me pause and make an application to ourselves. One of the commentators said, Jesus didn't deal with them as he dealt with the Pharisees. Jesus had harsh, severe words for hard-hearted unbelievers who were dupes of the devil. But when he's dealing with his own people, he gets exasperated but he deals differently with them because he knows they're just weak in faith. They're true men. 
They really believe at bottom. And when you read in his high priestly prayer, the way he commends them to his father so graciously, and they've kept your word, father, really? He is so gracious because he knows the heart of these men, that the root of the matter is in them, and he deals gently with them. My point here is that we shouldn't deal with people in a one-size-fits-all manner. Are you aware of that? We respond to people differently. And one very excellent paradigm that I commend to you, and probably mentioned it before, it's been so helpful to me, although it's not just directed to pastors, is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. In other words, you need to discriminate as to who you're dealing with, what their state is, as to how you respond. If someone is unruly and stubborn, they need some stern words of admonition. But if they're faint-hearted, don't crush them with admonition, but encourage them, instill courage in them. If they're weak, help them. You see the difference? We need, not just as pastors, but as people, we need discrimination. Back in the hippie era, some of you lived through that. We used to say different strokes for different folks. And that applies. Now, let me make a quick application to marriage here. A few years ago, we listened to the series Love and Respect. Excellent series. And he talks about the crazy cycle that couples get into. The woman doesn't feel loved, and so she's not respectful, and he doesn't feel respected, and so he doesn't love her, and she's not feeling loved, he's not feeling respected, and they cycle downward in what he calls the crazy cycle. One thing he said that was very helpful to me, he says, when you're dealing with a Christian husband and wife, You may not like the way they're coming at you at any given time, but please understand that in all likelihood they have goodwill. They have goodwill. You know, you may not like the manner in which they're speaking to you, and maybe it needs to change, but understand that if they're God's people, your husband, your wife really wants only your best interest and respond accordingly, believing, I don't like the way he's coming at me right now. I don't like the way she's coming at me right now, But at bottom, there's goodwill. He intends my good. She intends my good. And respond accordingly. And then as we deal with one another, we're not hard-hearted Pharisees. And so even as Jesus dealt gently and tenderly with his own disciples, he didn't crush them with rebuke, we need to relate that way to one another with much patience, mildness, gentleness, and forbearance. And if you are lacking in these graces, Let me just say, Jesus can help you and me. But now, consider the probing question Jesus asks. There is the patient rebuke he gives. He simply says, you don't know what you're asking. But then the probing question Jesus asks. He not only responds with gentleness and compassion, but he also gives some instruction here in 38b when he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is so good at asking probing questions. I constantly feel the need to get better at that. As a teacher, I'm, I, I make too many assertions, but you can, you can make a well-placed question that just exposes people's hearts, right? A pastor friend of mine was doing some marital counseling, and he said, I was asking one of the spouses, Do you love your spouse only when he, she performs well? 
And he said, it really hit pay dirt. It made that person think, what a good question. Are you loving that person only when they do what you want them to do, or are you loving them unconditionally? A well-placed question can be very powerful. And Jesus was the master of asking probing questions, and he does so here. Are you able? Are you able? He says, and by this question, he exposes their ignorance, and he further instructs them as to what it really means to sit on his right and left hand. You see, they're asking, Lord, we want to go where you go. We want to sit where you sit. We want to sit real close to you. We want to enter into your glory. And Jesus essentially saying, you have no idea what you're asking. Because where I'm going involves drinking a cup. I've got to drink a cup. He says, are you able? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, what's that referring to? Well, in the Bible, the cup refers to the contents of the cup. And more fully, the cup refers to one's lot in life, your portion in life. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes the cup is the cup of blessing. Maybe I'll just give you one example. Um, From the familiar Psalm 23, there are numerous examples, but for time's sake, just one example. Most of you have Psalm 23 memorized. One of the stanzas, one of the verses say, my cup runneth over, right? What does that mean? I'm so filled with blessing that, that my cup, my portion in life is just spilling over with blessing. My cup runneth over. Sometimes the cup is the cup of blessing, but not always. At other times, the cup is the cup of wrath and afflictions. And let me give you some examples of that, that to drink the cup and to have as your portion in life, not blessing, but wrath. Psalm 11 and verse 6, upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Their cup, what they're getting is not overflowing blessings, but they're getting my wrath. And Jesus spoke of his cup in other places to speak of his sufferings. I'll just cite John 18 and verse 11, where Jesus says, so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. This is when he was getting arrested. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? For Jesus, the cup he was going to drink was not a cup of blessing. It was going to be a cup of wrath, the wrath of God. But not wrath endured for his own sins, but the wrath of God endured for our sins. And here's the redemptive truth, brothers and sisters. When Jesus drank that cup, he drank it down to the dregs. He drank every drop of that cup of God's wrath. The reality is there is not one drop of wrath left for you and me. You and I will never suffer one drop of God's wrath in this life or in the life to come, because Jesus Christ drank that cup and swallowed down every bit of God's wrath that was intended for us. You guys don't know what you're asking. I'm going to be drinking a cup, a cup of blessing. It's a cup of wrath. And then he follows with a second figure. There's a baptism I have to undergo. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, baptism here, I suggest, is not referring to the rite or ceremony of baptism. It's really a figure of speech picking up on the the meaning of the word baptizo in the Greek. It means to dip or immerse. That's why I'm a Baptist. 
because we dip and immerse, because baptizo means dip and immerse. And like cup draws its meaning from the Old Testament, so does the idea of baptism. And let me just read a couple of references that capture this idea of this baptism that Jesus is referring to. In Psalm 42, 6 and 7, he says, the psalmist says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Psalm 69, beginning at verse 2, similarly. I have sunk deep in mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood over flows me. When Jesus says, I'm going to endure a baptism, he's talking about being overwhelmed. And again, not overwhelmed with blessing, overwhelmed with sorrow, even unto death. If there's a difference between cup and baptism, the commentators say that the cup may represent Christ's active obedience. I voluntarily drink the cup, whereas baptism represents what he passively endures. The cup is taken, the baptism is endured. So you guys want to go where I'm going? You want to sit on my right hand and, and, and left? Let me tell you where I'm going. I'm going to drink a cup. I'm going to undergo a baptism. Consider next, third of four points, the prophetic revelation in answer to the request. After giving this reply, which ends in a question, are you able, the disciples answer, we are able. We got this, Jesus. Cup, baptism, yeah, we, we got this. We can handle this. And when you read that, you got to think of Peter, right? Back in Matthew 26 and Peter's response, you got to think of the same mind that was in Peter when in Matthew 26, 33, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. And then a little while later, saying, I don't know the man, cursing and swearing. I don't know the man. Obviously, when they said we are able, they didn't understand the path Jesus was following, and nor did they understand their own hearts. To that, Jesus answers in verse 39. He said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. I'm calling this the prophetic revelation in answer to their request. We want to sit in your right hand and your left. Are you able? Yeah, we're able. We can handle it. He said, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism that I undergo, you, you will be baptized with. He's, he's not really instructing them at this point. He knows they're, they're beyond understanding. But he's not mocking them either. He's not mocking them. He's making a prophetic revelation of what they in particular would suffer and in general what all his people are called to suffer. We know in the Bible that James and John fulfilled that prophecy. In chapter 12, we're told that James was killed by the sword, and he died as a martyr for Jesus, perhaps the first apostle to die as a martyr. John is the only one of the 12 who, never, who wasn't killed for Jesus, but he was, according to Revelation 1.9, exiled 
to the island of Patmos, and he died in exile for Jesus. Did they drink the cup? Did they suffer the baptism that he underwent? Yes, they, they would, and they did. But this is not merely for James and John. I make the point that all of God's people, all of us are called in some sense to undergo a baptism and to drink the cup of Jesus' suffering. Notice that there's a necessary identification between Jesus' suffering and his people's suffering. This is a dominant theme in the New Testament, an unmistakable theme that for the believer, suffering for Jesus is part of our lot. It's part of the cup we are called to drink. You think of Matthew 10, 16 and 17. Jesus says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. John 15, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. And the only reason it hates you is because I took you out of the world. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 1, 5, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. He says in Galatians 6, 17, he says, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. I've got the scars in my body for my preaching the gospel, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. Colossians 1.24, he talks about filling up the cup of, of Christ's sufferings. And so there's a necessary identification between Jesus' suffering and his people suffering. In other words, every one of you as a believer has a cup of suffering to drink and a baptism of suffering to undergo. But let me be quick to point to the exceptional nature of Jesus' sufferings. We're called to suffer with him, but there's something very unique about Jesus' sufferings, right? Let me just use the language, the prophetic language of um, Isaiah 53, that, that clearest of all messianic prophecies, which tells us in verse 4 and following, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each of us to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The sufferings of Jesus were unique in that only that suffering was expiatory. Only Jesus suffered and died to take away sins. None of us died and suffered to take away sins. And he did it according to Hebrews once for all. So whereas we share in the sufferings of Christ, we're quick to make a distinction between his suffering and ours. His was unique. It was exceptional. It was unrepeatable. It was inimitable. It was redemptive. And we're called in one sense not to repeat that, but simply to trust in that finished work. And here, I'll make an application to you who are yet not yet in Jesus Christ. And my application is this. You can't get to heaven and, and earn God's favor by your suffering. You can't get to heaven and gain God's favor by anything good you do, any performance that you undergo. You can't earn his favor nor will your suffering earn God's salvation. Now, why do I say that? Because there have been people throughout history who think that by their suffering, they can merit God's favor. Not too far from here is the Ephrata Cloister. Have you ever visited it? In the 17 and 1800s, it was a place for nuns, and they would live a very austere life, eat one meager meal a day, 
sleep on a 15-inch wide board with a block of wood as a pillow. Being 12 and 2 every morning, they get up to pray and then 5 o'clock get up for the work of the day. Why? Because they thought in part this ascetic lifestyle, this lifestyle of great deprivation would somehow win points for them with God and help earn their salvation. Nothing you do, nothing you suffer, my unbelieving friend, can ever win the favor of God. Rather, you need to trust in the suffering of another. Jesus suffered for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath completely for us. He was overwhelmed with the suffering of the cross and alienation from his father for us. And yours is not to imitate that suffering, but it is to trust in it and it alone. But then, one more point here. There is a definite parallel between Jesus' sufferings and his people's sufferings. The reason we suffer. We are told over and over again, we suffer for his sake. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you wrongly for my sake. Rejoice for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven for my sake. And over and over again, Christian suffering is for Jesus' sake. And I thought of putting it this way. Jesus suffered for being Jesus. And we suffer for being like Jesus. And here, I want to make an application to us. You get the point, right? James, John, you want these positions of honor on my right hand and on my left? Um, you want to go where I'm going? Where I'm going, I have to drink a cup of wrath. Where I'm going, I have to be overwhelmed with a baptism of sorrow. Um, can you do that? Yeah, we can do that. Well, you will undergo that baptism. You will drink that cup. Uh, and they did. And here I want to ask us, because we're all called to participate in the sufferings of Jesus some way. Are you suffering enough for Jesus and for his cause? Now, in that, I am not encouraging a martyr's complex. Not at all. You don't see that in the New Testament. They don't go around looking for trouble, do they? They don't go around with their chin out. But trouble just seems to find them as they live the Christian life and as they proclaim Christ. I've given this illustration. I'm old enough to remember the old Westerns from the 50s and 60s. And there used to be a Western called, um, well, Paladin was the, the cowboy. And he'd stand in front of the camera dressed in black and he'd have two six guns. And he would say, I don't look for trouble. Trouble just seems to find me. And I thought, that's a description of a Christian. We're not looking for trouble. But trouble will find you if you're living for Jesus, if you're trying to be like Jesus, if you're sharing the gospel. And I want to ask you very carefully not to cultivate a, a martyr's complex, going out looking for trouble with your chin out. But are you, suffer are you living godly enough to suffer for Jesus? The Bible says, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we have to ask, are we suffering enough? Maybe it'll come from the family, because your family rejects Jesus, and you become a Christian, and they ostracize you, and they criticize you, and they demean you in some way, or cut themselves off from you. That's suffering for Jesus. Maybe it's in the workplace, where you're really trying to do a good job, but instead of getting rewarded for your honesty and your integrity, you show up other workers and they resent you for that. Or maybe it's because, you know, at the water cooler, you don't laugh at all their dirty jokes. 
You're not trying to be self-righteous and judgmental, but you're just trying to live a, a, a pure life. And as a result of that, you get the arrows of persecution. It's often when we share the gospel that the persecution comes, isn't it? And I was thinking in our day, you know, we used to get persecuted for claiming the exclusivity of Jesus. People don't like that. You mean Jesus is the only way to God? Today, to get labeled and to get persecuted, all you need to do is uphold biblical morality. It's like, I, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. What? You bigot? And we get called haters and phobic, this or that, just for upholding biblical morality before you even get to the gospel. But are you bold to uphold the morality and ethics of the Bible as well as the truth of the gospel in our day? It will draw fire. And so I ask, not to create a, a martyr's complex, but to um, make sure that we're filling up the cup of Christ's sufferings, that we're suffering all that we should, and not putting our light under a basket. And remember that with suffering comes joy, though. That's another theme. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they persecute you, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are persecuted for the name of Christ, rejoice because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you find that when you witness for Christ. Isn't it a strange combination? Aren't they some of your most joyful times? No matter what the response, I, I, I told them the truth. I, I cared for their soul, and there's a joy in sharing the gospel. Well, one final point, fairly brief, the proper recipients of the requested position. Does Jesus ever answer the question, uh, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand and your left? Well, listen to verse 40 and following. He says, but to sit on my right hand and on the left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. By the way, Luke's version said, prepared by the Father. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your, ser your slave of all. And he caps it off with this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Does Jesus answer their question? Well, yes and no. There is glory to be had. You want to sit? You want, you want glory at my right and left hand? There, there is glory to be had. There will be glory coming in my kingdom. But for, who, for whom is that glory? Not those who are chosen by carnal partiality. You're not going to get it because you're more aggressive than the rest. I'm not like a corrupt politician practicing cronyism. No, uh, you're not going to get awarded that because of um, carnal partiality. I'm not going to play favorites. But rather, that honor will be given by those chosen, and according to Luke, prepared by my Father. And so in one sense, Jesus says, I, I, I don't know who's going to be on my right hand or my, my left. But he goes beyond that, and he does give a hint of who is likely to be at the right and the left hand. You see, upon hearing their request, the ten are indignant. And you might think they were indignant because they were offended for Jesus' sake. Like, James, John, what are you doing? Our Lord has all this suffering on his mind. How can you be thinking about self-exaltation when the Lord is weighed down with his sufferings in Jerusalem? 
How insensitive of you, James and John. Was that their indignation? No, the commentators are agreed. They were indignant because they were afraid that James and John would have beaten them to the punch because they wanted the same glory. And we're afraid that James and John have gotten there first. And so as a result, what does Jesus do? Hearing this, or what he says is he calls them to himself, and that's when he gives the teaching. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. He takes them aside, and he reiterates the principle that he had given them. Remember when they, a few chapters earlier, were arguing among themselves as to which one was the greatest? He taught similarly then. He needs to give them a review. You know, he says, you know the way it is with the pagan nations and the pagan rulers. You know about their authoritarianism. Now, already in history, there have been numerous dictators who have come and gone and, and filled, uh, were um, according to this description, they knew of Nebuchadnezzar, the one who looked over Babylon the Great and said, isn't the city, this is the city that I have built? They knew of Sennacherib. They knew of Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period. They knew of Alexander the Great, who was esteemed as a savior, liberator, benefactor. They knew of the monuments that the great dictators had made to themselves and to their victories. They knew of the self-deification of the Roman emperors, and they were living under the Roman Empire. The coins of the day told the story on the Roman denarius. The emperor Tiberius was depicted as the semi-divine son of the god Augustus and the goddess Livia. Copper coins struck by Herod Philip of Caesarea Philippi showed the head of the emperor Augustus and later his son Tiberius with the emperor's name and the words, he who deserves adoration. He was aware of how the pagan leaders virtually deified themselves they exercise authority over others. That word means to bring under one's power, to subject to oneself, to subdue, to master. And these guys knew how these pagan rulers ruthlessly would push themselves to the top to get the positions of power, whether they had to lie, steal, cheat, whether they had to exterminate their opponents to get there, whether they had to flatter, fawn, compromise principle, conscience, or character to get into those positions of power. And once they got there, oh, they exercised that power. They wielded it cruelly and brashly, imposing their will on others. You want a description of it that's very current? Vladimir Putin and a whole trail of others. In our lifetime, we used to talk about Hitler, thinking we're never going to see another Hitler. Well, we've seen plenty of Hitlers in our lifetime, and we have one right now wreaking great havoc upon people in Ukraine. The rulers of the Gentiles, these pagans, these power-hungry, self-centered, maniacal, um, egotistical, narcissistic leaders, that's what they do. But it shall not be so among you. Among you in my kingdom, the great is going to be the servant. The first one is going to be, he's going to be the, um, the slave of all. Who's going to sit at my right hand and left? I'm not telling you exactly because I don't know, but it's going to be somebody who's a great servant. There are going to be men who are great slaves of others. Now, by this, Jesus does not negate authority. There's real authority given, even in his church. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 13 of the authority God gave me. But then he says, for building up, not for tearing down. Titus, Paul says to Titus, command these things with all authority. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders, submit to them. There's real authority. I have real authority as a pastor. 
in the church. It's not the authority so much as how the authority is carried out. Whether that authority is carried out as a servant for the good of others, not for a man's own ego and his own self-glorification. And then Jesus leaves them the greatest example possible of servant leadership, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the passage that follows is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. It's going to give us a sterling example of the servanthood of our Lord Jesus, perhaps the greatest example of his servanthood, short of his crucifixion. But we'll have to wait till next time for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, Lord Jesus, thank you for your clear teaching. Once again, reminding us, Lord, that the greatest in your kingdom is the servant, is the slave. Oh, give us a servant's heart. Give us a humility to reflect you, Lord Jesus, and look out for the good of others, not looking out for our own ego, our own reputation, our own image. Lord, make us servants like you. We pray in your name.